Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Here we go, guys. Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40. These are the words of God. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Last week we started... um, a specific, down a specific path, a specific journey to learn about petitionary prayer or those prayers of request to God. And we looked at several elements related to prayers of petition. We looked uh, first at identifying the object of our faith within those particular prayers. So, for example, we, we want to know whether or not we're putting our faith in the gift or the giver, and there are instances when both of those are necessary, okay? So we're putting our faith in the gift, uh, that is the specific thing we're praying for, as well as in the giver, God, who is answering those prayers. We also looked at uh, the form, and we observed that Scripture communicates two distinct patterns. C.S. Lewis referred to these forms as the A pattern and the B patterns of prayer. The A pattern of prayer is, uh, is like Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. This is the not my will, but thy will kinds of prayers. Uh, meanwhile, the B pattern of prayer are contingent solely on the faith of the individual, but more importantly, these are requests which God has already approved of. These are, just, these are his standard will, uh, what he wants, and all we have to do in faith without doubting, don't miss that part of it, right? But in faith without doubting, what we have to do is ask. You can find that in James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Today, uh, we're going to look again at David's, uh, David's requests in this particular section of Psalm 119. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to try to determine whether or not these prayers constitute pattern A, let thy will be done, or thy will be done, or pattern B, which is just a standing promise of God, and we're just going to walk, uh, we're going to walk in faith after those things. But we're not just looking at these verses to determine their pattern to no end. There's a purpose in understanding this, which we'll get to today. Uh, And also, we're not determining these patterns based on how we feel. This is one of the most important things I'm going to say today. We are not determining these things based on how we feel. In his book, Tactics, uh, Greg Kokel, that's a book that I would highly recommend that you buy and that you look at. Um, but in his book, Tactics, Greg Kokel said that there is a difference between an opinion and an argument. How many of you know that that's true? There's a difference between an opinion and an argument. An opinion is just a point of view. An argument is, by contrast, is a point of view that is supported by reasons. So argument, arguing is not always bad if you're doing it in, in that way. So as we look at these requests, what we're going to do is we're going to uncover several reasons for 
our perspective, our viewpoint. So therefore, we'll have a sound argument in defending this particular uh, position. As far as the end goes, for us, the end uh, is to gain a more robust understanding of prayer. I asked the question last week, how many of you feel that you uh, want to grow in your understanding of prayer? Hands shot up. I asked how many of you felt like analysis that I was giving last week was helpful. Almost every hand shot up again because it's really, uh, it's really a thing that we desire. It's a spiritual discipline that I think we all want to do better at. Here's the deal, though. I just hope that we realize we need to learn, right? We need to grow in these things. We need desperate help in these matters, right? So, um, you know, John's disciples asked John to teach them how to pray. Jesus' disciples said, well, John's disciples are being taught how to pray. Why don't you teach us how to pray? So if Jesus' disciples who lived with and observed him day by day needed to be taught how to pray, I think we need to learn the lesson too. Amen? there's There's a theory... Um, among certain groups in the church that, that asserts that when something feels more organic or more emotional or more feeling-based, then it's more genuine, <laughs> right? So, well, I, I felt like God's presence was there. That, those are great observations, and I'm not, I'm not dogging that in particular. I'm simply saying that, that we feel a lot of things in life. And a lot of those feelings are just terribly inaccurate, right? We can feel a lot of things, but how many of you know that if you feel one thing, there's probably someone in this world that feels the exact opposite. So who's right? Well, we've got to get beyond that. Feelings are great, but they have to be informed in some way. And so we need to be taught how to pray. We don't just want to wing it. A lot of times the wing it prayers end up devolving into just total nonsense. That's what I, uh, what I see. I saw a meme just this morning that was on Facebook. It cracked me up. It said, it said uh, something about, you know that you're in this type of church, and I won't give that name, but you're in this type of church when the prayer includes somebody saying the name Father God 75 times in the prayer, <laughs> right? There are many people, they just don't know what they're praying. They're just like, Heavenly Father, Father God, Father God, Father God, Heavenly Father, Father God. It's like, will you just pray for goodness sakes? You know, so we've got to learn how to pray. So this morning, we're going to learn how to pray, and we're going to distinguish between A pattern and B pattern prayers, again, by looking at David's word. So let's go right to verse 33, and we'll start walking through it. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Notice the prayer, which is teach me, and David's promise, I shall observe. Now, we're not really going to deal with David uh, in, in depth here. We know that his heart is that of humility. We know that that's going to be required. We will reference that. But our focus here is on the prayer. The question that we're asking is when, uh, when we petition God to teach us, do we need to add, well, thy will be done, Lord, Or is this a prayer that is a standing promise? That is, God wants to teach his people, and all we have to do is just trust by faith that he is going to do so. Uh, Is this an A pattern prayer or a B pattern prayer? Uh, We can know this for sure, but we're going to have to go to other parts in Scripture to prove the point. Psalm 25, verse 9, it'll be on the screen for you. Psalm 25, 9 says, He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his ways. Psalm 25 provides a snapshot into the character of God, doesn't it? 
He does these things. He is a just God, but he leads the humble and he teaches them. The reason that God leads and teaches the humble is found elsewhere in Scripture. And that is found in the passage that says, because God rejects the proud. So we're dealing with a submitted people. We're dealing with a people who yield, not to their own will or their own ideas, but to King Jesus. This is a consistent picture of God throughout the Bible. God is gracious to those who humble themselves, those who ask, those who seek, and those who knock. In other words, God is gracious to those who recognize that life is found in him. Life is not found inside of ourselves. How many of you know that to be true? You will not look within and find the secrets of life. It's just not going to happen, okay? Okay, so uh, Psalm 32.8 is another one that we want to go to. It'll be on the screen as well. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Again, God is our instructor, right? He is our teacher and our counselor. This is just who he is by his nature. Um, when we're being taught by God, we have to remember uh, this passage says that his eye is always upon us. I, I like this because uh, there's a real positive thing that's being said here. We can read it wrong, but there's a positive thing that's being said here. This is not the evil-eyed teacher that's staring you down during a test, okay? I think some people feel God is that way, but this is not what's happening here. Instead, what is, what is uh, being pictured in this verse is a loving father who's watching his son or daughter so that he might help them in their time of need. Think about it again. God's words from Psalm 32. These are, this is God speaking to the psalmist. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I hear the love of a father in that statement. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and look at this line, and he will make your path straight. A key part of our trust, a key part of our faith, is the humility not to lean to our own understanding. And this is hard. This is very hard. We want to, well, I've got it figured out. I know how this works. No, we need to lean to God, believing instead that God is there to teach us. He's there to guide us. He will always make our paths straight. A good teacher, here's what a good teacher does. A good teacher engages their students. A good teacher uh, gains their students' um, their, their students. Uh, trust, their students' love, endearment, right? And within this learning dynamic, the pair can move forward. This is a picture of what we saw with Jesus and his disciples. He, he, he got their trust. I mean, you think about what he did with Peter right off the bat. Hey, cast your nets over here. Peter does so, and he fills the nets. Does Jesus have to do that? No, he doesn't, but he does. He condescends to us in so many ways, and it's very powerful. So this is the dynamic that is required for us to move together, a teacher and a student. Teachers make straight paths for their students to walk in. And, and this is another interesting idea. We all know that the road is broad that leads to destruction, right? We all know that the road is broad that leads to destruction. We also know that the narrow way is the way that leads to life. But what has happened in our Christian understanding somewhere is that we've just viewed this through the lens of um, 
of stuffy morality. And don't get me wrong, God has clear morals and we are called to obey and follow after that. But we've viewed it only through this stuffy view of morality. And so we've looked at the narrow way as this really rigid, hard path that is absolutely impossible for us to walk. Now, in and of yourself, it is an impossible task. You will not walk that narrow path without the Spirit of God, without God's guidance and His help. But when God says that He is teaching you this path, when He is showing you a path, what is happening is that while you are walking in life, which is the broad way, He is pointing to you the narrow way within that broader way. So, when you say, I'm walking in life and I'm just loving people, God says, time out, here's what love really is, and it becomes narrow, and you begin to see it better, right? Or when you say, man, I'm really, I'm really not liking this person, they're, they're, they're frustrating me, God says, let me teach you a better way. The better way is that when you hate somebody in your heart, you're running the line of murder already, so you need to be careful. See, the broad way is now becoming narrow, because why? Because we have a teacher teaching his students, it's not just, hey, there's the hard path you got to follow. Good luck. It's simply not what the scripture communicates. Instead, we have a father, we have a teacher guiding us the entire way. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. Remember what I said last week, God is generous in his distribution of wisdom and he does so without reproach, meaning when you come and you say, Lord, I don't know, he doesn't say, well, come on, idiot, we'll figure it out together. He doesn't treat you with that kind of reproach. He loves you. He knows that you don't know what he knows, <laughs> right? So he does generously, gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, James goes on to say, but he must ask with faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. According to James, God has already promised to give wisdom. Wisdom. James said that God gives generously and without reproach. Make sure you remember it every time you're seeking God. Why does God give this way? Because generosity is his character. Generosity, compassion, grace, these are the character of God. Note, though, the conditions or the prerequisites of these free gifts. They are faith, trust, and humility. Now, give me your attention for just a second, guys. Give me your attention. Do not conflate putting your faith in Christ, trusting Christ, or being humble, humbling yourself. Do not conflate that as being some kind of work, spiritual or otherwise. It is not understood that way by any biblical writer, and it has only recently come to mean that kind of nonsense in the world today. It is not a work to say, I recognize I am helpless without you. That is not a work. That is called, duh. <laughs> that is called revelation, and you recognize what's happening. Instead, what these things are, humility and faith and, and resting in God, these are confessions that God's work alone is the only thing that you can rely on. I'm acknowledging I cannot win the day by myself. God's wisdom alone is what's going to guide me in life. So, here's the question. Should we ask this prayer, this part of Psalm 119, and add, well, if it's your will, Lord, teach us, Lord, if it's your will, give us understanding, if it's your will, 
Should we pray that way? Or should we pray that God will teach us knowing that if we will humbly trust him, it will take place in our life? Which pattern is this? It's pattern B, isn't it? It's pattern B. Thank you, Mike. It's pattern B, and that's, that's a huge deal. But we need to understand this because if we don't understand it, here's, here's my fear. My fear is that every prayer becomes, well, Lord, if it's your will, well, Lord, if it's your will, well, Lord, if it's your will, and we actually can't know anything. And here's the danger there. We've made James 1, 5, and 6 ridiculous. We've made it a pointless statement. James should have just saved his breath. But it's not ridiculous. It's not pointless. There are things we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And we need to pray those things. Very important. Okay, so let's move on to verse 34. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. I hope that you guys can see the progression that's happening through these verses. Verse 33, teach me so that I may observe. Verse 34, give me understanding that I can do it with all my heart. Verse 35, make me walk in the path that I might do it with delight. See that? That's absolutely amazing. Teach me, I want to understand it. Teach me so that I can do it. Let me understand so that I can, that I can uh, give it my whole heart. And then guide me so that I can do it with pleasure, with joy. Many of us somewhere in our Christian life stopped, okay? So we got taught a bunch of stuff. Maybe we even grew in some understanding of some things. But we failed to move on to the teach me part, to the guide me, to lead me part, where we actually do God's will with joy in our heart. You know that it is joyful to follow the law of the Lord. It is joyful to follow the law of the Lord. It will never seem joyful if you lack understanding. It will never seem joyful if you don't realize he's walking beside you in this journey. So we see that it's always God's will, though, to teach and to give understanding. And the reason behind that willingness is because it's also God's will always for us to love him with our whole heart. You see how I'm putting reasons together with my viewpoint to form an argument so that you guys can say, I know this. I know that we know this. It's a fact. It's objective. It's not some subjective feeling out in the middle of Never Never Land, right? So he, it's his will for us to love him with all of our heart. Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So, why would God really make this the great and foremost command, but not be willing to teach us and to give us understanding? It's just absurd, right? So clearly he does. Again, this is a B pattern prayer. This is an automatic. Okay, verse 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Does the wording within this verse mean that David is asking God to override his will, And make him walk. Not at all. And I highly recommend you just go home, sit on your couch, and pray this prayer. Lord, make me move. And next week, I'll call you and say, why are you late to church? Because you probably haven't moved all week. Because that's just absurd. God is not a divine peddler, okay, of love potions. He's not Cupid shooting you with an arrow so that you have to love him or override something inside of you. To pray for him to do so is naively to deny the God-given responsibility that each and every one of us has. 
We have a responsibility. We are creatures with a free will, ha, a will that was given to us by our creator, so don't miss that, and he expects us to use it for his glory. That is why there's personal responsibility even in salvation. I like this is personal responsibility in walking out our salvation to honor God. I like the ESV's rendering of this verse, which says, lead me in the path. Okay, now we have a viewpoint that we can actually provide support for, uh, reasoning for, to make a sound argument. John 10, 11 shows us that God is our shepherd. He is our leader, right? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That also communicates his character. He's willing to die for you. He's willing to lay it down so that you would follow after him. The great 23rd Psalm also shows us how we are to be led and where we are to be led. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That makes me just happy. I can take a deep breath in that truth. Here, what we have is the perfect picture of a loving and comforting and protecting father. Not a tyrannical or arbitrary force, but loving, guiding, nurturing, spurring, and even correcting when need be. Okay? This is who God is. We are led, notice this, we are led also without want if we will choose to trust our shepherd. Many times we still deal with the wants of life because we're not content. And by content, I mean we're not resting in the provision of our king. He is leading us in peace, right? The scripture tells us that he's leading us to green pastures or beside quiet waters. Now, I'm hoping that means Colorado someday. I'm hoping that means like Ireland or Scotland someday. But even if that's not the case, the images that are presented here are just images that he is leading us to rest and to peace. It's the kind of peace that God promises to those whose minds are stayed on him, which is what Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 26.3. God's plan all along was to restore us, that's revival language, over and over, in paths of righteousness, and check this out, It is all for his glory. It is all because he is the gracious, compassionate, slow to anger God that Jonah didn't actually understand, right? He is that as God, and that is what brings him glory. So in verse 35, we have to ask the question, is it pattern A or is it pattern B? Let me ask it another way. Is David saying, lead me, Lord, if it's your will, Pattern A, or is, does he already know that God's will is to call him to follow and that he just needs to pray in faith? It's pattern B, isn't it? God's will is always to lead us. Okay, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. As I shared last week, this verse has everything to do with contentment. How many of you just love that word, contentment? How many of you feel completely content in life? Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, man, there's a lot of reluctancy going on here. Okay, being content in God's provision, that's his testimonies, rather than, 
uh, in dishonest gain, which is what we might make for ourselves. This is, again, this is the story of contentment. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul wrote about being content in all things. I want you to follow along with this on the screen. Uh, and highlight it in your Bible, because this is, this is really powerful. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now, I'm also going to uh, toss a little bit of a grenade in the room here for a second, which is going to disrupt maybe some of your views of this particular passage of Scripture, but please hear me out. There's reasons for my viewpoint, which is my argument. Now that I speak, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. That's an intriguing line there, because as you all should remember, in Proverbs chapter 30, Solomon seems to pray to God for guardrails. He seems to pray to God, don't give me too much that I forget you, and don't give me too little that I steal and profane your name. And yet Paul, in a very powerful turn of events, Paul says, because of Christ who strengthens me, I actually can live in prosperity and it doesn't make me wander. I can live in want and I have no temptation to steal and to run the other way. Nathan, how do you get that from there? I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both in having abundance and suffering need. And here's why he says this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Verse 13 is the key to all of this. Okay? It is. What the, what the context of this overquoted text actually is referring to is contentment. Right? contentment. It is not anything you want it to be. There is actually no way in which you can read this passage of scripture and believe that God is literally saying you can do anything through Christ who strengthens you. Jump off the top of your house and say you can fly and Christ will strengthen you. I promise you, you'll have a broken leg next week <laughs> and I'll say I told you so, right? This is not what this is supposed to mean. And this is a danger in modern Christianity because we take everything out of context and we make it mean whatever we want and it simply does not. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And Paul meant contentment. Look at what he goes on to say. Like, we really, really, really have to get this. It's nonsense to believe otherwise. Paul believed that he could be content... He could do all things, poverty or riches, through Christ who gave him strength. So, is it God's will to give us strength to be content? An emphatic yes. An emphatic yes. Is it God's will to incline our hearts to that contentment, to come to peace in what he provides? The answer is an emphatic yes. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it's on the screen. Seeing that his divine power, and highlight this if you're following with me, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, highlight this one too, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is, again, a pattern B prayer. 
And we clearly have evidence to support our viewpoint. God has already granted us everything we need in order that we may become partakers of his divine nature. Is there, uh, is there any doubt in this? I mean, it seems just blatantly clear, right? He has done it. His hand of divine help has already been offered. Now, whether or not we reach out and take that hand to become partakers is a matter of faith, right? This is faith in action. This is the call that God has called each and every one of us to. So it's a pattern B prayer, right? Verses 37 and 38. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Now, both of these right up front, both of these look like uh, B pattern prayers to me, and here's why. Number one, God's desire is for the revival of all. 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, what does it say? God wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. So it only follows that if revival is God's will, then turning our eyes from vanity, the things which destroy us, is also his will. It just happens to be his method to turn us from those things of vanity. Second, we know that revival is found solely in God's ways. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God's ways are higher than our ways. There's never a point in which your way rivals God's way. (laughs) His ways are always higher than our ways. Third, vanity is always understood as meaninglessness in the scriptures. Always. There's never a chance otherwise. Therefore, God wanting our eyes on things that are good, pure, and holy, that's clearly his will. Can I get an amen? It's his will that he wants us to do things that are good and holy and pure. God wants our eyes on him. God wants our eyes on his kingdom. And I could spend the rest of the day just giving you references to prove that point. It appears that the apostle Peter would have seen this as a B-pattern prayer as well. Turning us from vanity and establishing us uh, are always the desire of God's heart. Look at what Peter said, 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It is God's will, and he himself will do these things. I can rest in that and take great joy in that. Okay, verse 39, and this one is going to be extremely challenging for some. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Last week, I made the point about reproach, the reproach of men in particular, um, and that the counsel of God is the remedy to the supposed counsel of men. Uh, Everybody wants to give you their opinion. Can I get an amen on that one? But, but, But God has the right opinion. And this is why David contrasts reproach in verse 39 with the good ordinances of God. Because those are, those are the ways that we should follow. We can prove this out even further, though. Uh, but does this mean that reproach will not come? Absolutely not. Does this mean that, we will, uh, that reproach will always be turned away in our life? The answer is absolutely not. This is why I'm proposing that this is a, p- a pattern A prayer. Psalm 119, verse 41 and 42. May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word, so I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. David seems to acknowledge that reproach is coming, 
All David wants is an answer to that reproach, but he also says in the previous verse, he wants that God would remove it if it happens to be God's will. The loving kindness, the salvation of God, which is according to his word, is the answer to the reproach of men. It always will be. But that reproach still happens. This, in my mind, is similar to 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that you have. Okay, what about, uh, what about Psalm 31, 10 and 11? Here's a reproach that came at the hands of David's own sin. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity. Whose fault was it here? David's fault, my iniquity. And my body has wasted away because of all my adversaries. I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. Some of my neighbors have felt that way to me. Anyway, uh, uh, Jerry class specific. No, I'm messing with him. An object of dread to my acquaintances, those who see me in the streets flee from me. You ever felt like that? Pretty crazy. Sometimes the reproach we face is of our own making like it was for David. And it's enduring. There's a season for it. So what's my point in this? And this is I know that this ruffles feathers, but please listen to me. I want to have a discussion. I'm presenting to you guys uh, reasons for my viewpoint, which is my argument. That doesn't mean there's not a counter-argument. That doesn't mean that conversation can't be had. But listen to me clearly. I believe that Psalm 119.39 is actually an A pattern of prayer. I believe that the removal of reproach is like the guarantee of healing in this life. I think it is the ultimate plan of God, but I don't believe it's always the temporal plan of God. Not according to the evidence, at least. And if you've dealt with sickness for even longer than one minute, the evidence is proving my point. For David to ask God to turn away his reproach every time would actually be for David not to understand, brace yourself, the good effects of reproach. The good effects of reproach. And although this is a touchy subject, the same is true for healing and our health. Consider how the story of David and Bathsheba touches on both healing and reproach. When confronted by Nathan the prophet, David learned that he and Bathsheba, who would lose the baby boy that they had, that was born out of this affair. Can you imagine how the reproach of his sin weighed him down? as he watched his son's health deteriorate, and he's heard people whisper behind his back. This is what David deals with all the time. He prayed and fasted for seven days. His son worsened. God said no. The boy died, and the parents grieved. That's hard. And no, this isn't just an old covenant idea. The same thing happens to Timothy in his frequent ailments, Paul with his persecution, and many others throughout the New Testament. The good effects of reproach include maturity, humility, repentance, and more. Paul's thorn in the flesh, which was a reproach of men, by the way. It was persecution. David's later encounter with Shimei, throwing stones at him. Jesus' own promise that in this life we will have trouble, all of these church are parallels to what I'm talking about. This is an A pattern of prayer. I believe that the faith we're supposed to maintain in these situations is a faith in the giver 
not in the gift. Whether or not God turns away the reproach of men, we can still rest in the fact that he is good and that his grace is sufficient for us. That he is always teaching us something. That's what God is doing. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, this is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. It would take an entire other message, right, to prove my point here. But when Paul mentions weakness, he is not referring to moral weakness, the moral weakness of sin simply doesn't pan out in the scripture. The context shows that he's referring to physical weakness at the hands of persecutors, those who have abused him and beat him because of his faith in Jesus. It is also true that when Paul speaks of grace, it's not always referring to favor over and against sin. God's grace is abounding in all kinds of areas in our life. Paul prayed just like David did for his reproach to be turned away, But it was not to be. In place of this, God told Paul that his grace was sufficient. After all, God himself told Ananias that Paul would suffer greatly for his service to the king. All the while, God had planned great favor for for Paul later. This is really hard, but it's really important to think about. Now, I know that it's challenging and I know that some will not like that idea, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, right? Healing and persecution are tricky issues. They seem to me thy will be done kind of prayers. They seem to me as I see them. Um, And I believe that I've presented valid reasons for my viewpoint. I'm not suggesting that it's the only argument. But it's something that I'd love to engage in because this is an important matter. I think a lot of people struggle with praying for healing for their friends. I know that I have struggled this way uh, in praying for my friends, always adding on the end of it, Lord, if it's your will, and here's the deal, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong about that, well, then I'm not being very much help to my friends, am I? If it's supposed to be a be healed, I don't think it is, but it's something that's worth considering. Something that we need to weigh out throughout the scriptures. Okay, finally, verse 40, and we'll conclude all of this. Verse 40 is simple. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. The reasons that we saw in verses 37 and 38 also lend to this being a pattern B prayer as well. This is just a foregone conclusion. God wants to revive his people. We just simply need to run to him. Uh, We also learned this weeks ago in Psalm 119 that God is a God of revival. So what do we do with all of this? This is is a more candid moment, so listen to me. Hopefully, hopefully what we do from A pattern and B pattern prayers is we learn from it. Hopefully we learn from it. That's what we want. We want to make sure that we're growing as Christians. Last week I confessed that when it comes to petitionary prayer, I struggle with the either-or approach. Either I want to pray always a pattern prayers, if it's thy will, Lord. This is what I call the God's going to do what God's going to do anyway prayer. (laughs) How many of you feel that way? (laughs) Whatever. God's going to do that. Or I tend to pray things like, well, I feel that this is a promise of God. I want this to be a promise of God, which, as I said, mostly is an attempt to convince my faith to fall in line with my imagination. 
It's just true. This results in absurdly claiming promises that although all promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, we don't understand that right. And so therefore, uh, I claim promises at times that just weren't meant for me or that I've misunderstood. And this results in me chasing after that ever-elusive right level of faith so that I can get what I want. This is not a biblical idea either. The level of faith that we're talking about in Scripture of having faith, ye of little faith versus having faith, is binary. Ye of little faith, you don't trust Jesus at all. Or you trust him. How can I prove it? Because he said if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. (laughs) Right? It's not about a level. That's not what it is. It's about will you please actually trust God? But if we understand that there are multiple kinds of petitionary prayer and we are willing to search the scriptures for what they teach about what they teach about God's actual promises, then I'm confident that we will begin to pray more accurately. Not just winging it. No more winging it now. I don't want to be those people. I want to be a people who, who know. I don't want to be meandering about with many words. God says he doesn't listen in those cases. What he wants is people of faith that are actually going to him and trusting him, okay? We will know that there are prayers that we can confidently pray, adding no disclaimers whatsoever if we'll learn, while also knowing that there are prayers that we still pray in faith, understanding that God may have a reason for not giving us what we ask. Another line from C.S. Lewis that I love a lot is this one. He says that wisdom uh, must sometimes refuse, that God, wisdom, must sometimes say no, refuse, what ignorance, Nathan, (laughs) what ignorance may quite innocently ask seems self-evident. God is still in control, church. It should be a no-brainer that we have a lot to learn with respect to God's will and how petitionary prayer works. Which brings the issue of maturity up, which I said I wanted to talk about a little bit this week. This is, this is the last piece, so bear with me for a little bit longer. I was raised being taught that once a person was born again, that they were able to access all things that are a part of the kingdom of God, including whatever it was that was purchased in the atonement. This, of course, requires agreement on what was purchased in the atonement, and to this day, nobody ever seems to agree on that, but that's me just lamenting. Nonetheless, I have access to a fuller Christian life just when I became a follower of Jesus and that I ought to function at top capacity. This meant that whatever Jesus did, not only uh, can I do, but I should do, right? Not to mention greater things in John 14, 12. This meant that I should heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and more, whatever more is which I'm still confused about what more is all the time, right? However, what this view doesn't take into account is the process of maturity. I can honestly tell you that my kids are full members of my household. As full covenant members of my household, they they, uh, participate in safety, security, protection, and countless other things. Trust me, it's true. But I don't mean by that membership that they can turn the stove on anytime they choose or take the car for a spin. It's just simply not going to happen. Those things come with time. Those things come with training. Those things come with maturity. And just in case you want to know this as a biblical truth, the same thing happened to Jesus' disciples. Three years 
of trying and screwing up. And Jesus walking with them. And then when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, Peter still manages to screw it up. Like, how's this happening? <laughs> We're human. That's how it happens. Likewise, as children, uh, 100% of his kingdom belongs to us. We are kingdom citizens. But that does not mean that God has given us the reins to the kingdom without reservation. We have much growing to do. And until that growth takes place, we are to run to the Father for his approval on a great many things. Please hear me, church. This is not a lack of faith. Instead, this is a display of true faith that runs to God and not to myself. A faith in my faith is not faith. A faith in my ability to do something is not faith, according to the Scriptures. A trusting in King Jesus is faith, according to the Scriptures. Again, petitionary prayer is not simple activity. I know many of you are looking at me like, man, Nathan, this sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it is. It is. But it's only work. Please don't mishear what I'm about to say. It is only work. It is only viewed as too much work through immature eyes. Mature eyes will say, teach me whatever I need to learn, Lord. I'll do whatever you say. If it means I got to rewrite this story, if it means that I got to start from scratch, if it means that I got to throw my tradition and my ideas in the garbage and restart with your word alone, then I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. That's what it looks like for somebody with maturity to look at it. And I don't claim that it's going to be easy, but it is something that we need to do. Apart from God retaining some discretionary power to grant or refuse a petition in certain circumstances, prayer would be too dangerous a power for us to wield. How many of you know that? Every day we'd be changing the landscape. Mountain, go. Mountain, go. Mountain, go. In Ohio, I'd pull up the mountains and all you beach people would be like, ocean, right? No, we're not doing that. This, I, I'm, I'm using absurd ideas just to communicate a point here, guys. We don't have just free reign to do whatever we want. Apart from God actually granting prayers, though, by faith, then the scriptures would be contradictory, which we know they're not. So what do we have? Both. We have both. And they're right there staring us in the face. And we've got to do something with them. We've got to do something with them. Take your prayer life seriously, is my instruction to you. Stop just winging it. Search the scriptures, let them teach you what God has promised and what God desires you to do. What he desires uh, is his will, or what he says is his will. Let the scriptures and not your traditions inform you. Remain humble, and whatever else you do, remember, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And what does he promise? He'll make your paths straight. You don't have to wonder about meandering about. You can know that he's got you. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.